song better get it on your itunes favorites on your playlist on your spotify hey it is good to have you here in bellingham those of you in skagit thanks for joining us today i just want to say what a joy it was to be with you last sunday night with some of you at the inside cornwall it's great to meet you and get to know you and talk a little bit more those of you in boca raton at the trinity church of god always glad to have you and those online uh, with the live stream thanks for being here this is the last week of our uh, camino de uh, iglesia series and if you have not been with us if you're just kind of joining in you're in the very tail end of a series that we've done for this is the fourth week and the whole concept was based on um, a an ancient pathway called the camino de santiago it's across spain that ends in Santiago de Compostela that my wife and I were privileged to be able to participate in this last summer. And as we were doing that, there were a lot of insights, a lot of musings, a lot of thinking, a lot of questions that came up. And I began to think about those things and then tie them to the timeless truths of God's word. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Those things we can base our life and our eternity on that foundation that never changes. And then to take that and apply it to the church today. And that's what we've been doing and as we were doing this trip, um, there were people that we had talked to beforehand to get some information, kind of some, how does this work, and different things. And there's a book, there's a lot of different books about this, but kind of the book that everyone goes to is a book by a guy named John Brearley. It's the Pilgrim's Guide to the Camino de Santiago. And in that, he gives all the logistical details you'd need. I'm going blind. Okay. <laughs> Uh, in that he gives all the logistical details you would need about uh, you know where to stay how far it is where you might eat some things to watch out for little side trips you might want to take but uh, John uh, Brearley is he would refer to himself as kind of a Catholic mystic so not only does he give you the logistics of the external journey but he gives some things on the internal journey and there are these different insights he gives from his own experiences and and some different things and my um completely unsolicited opinion because he doesn't care what I think is that some of his uh, insights and thoughts were right on track they were really good caused a, a good good fodder for for thought some of them were a little bit out there but regardless I would read them and, and kind of take it with a grain of salt and pick and choose what I wanted to well as I was reading this one day he gave the quote and there's no attribution so I don't know who quote who's this originally quoted from but he he put this quote out there. He said, I am not a human being on a spiritual journey. I am a spiritual being on a human journey. And I thought, that's deep. I don't have a clue what it means, but that's deep. I'm going to think about that. And, and again, the way that this thing worked where we would walk for miles every day gave me a lot of time to think. So I just spent some time thinking about that. I'm not a human being on a spiritual journey. I'm, not a, I'm a spiritual being on a human journey. And I began to think, and the more I thought about it, and you can spend some time chewing on this as well, the more profound it became in my mind. 
Because if I'm merely a human being on a spiritual journey, then that means that my spiritual aspect is just a part of my greater whole, that this spiritual aspect is just an accessory to my life. But if I am a spiritual being on a human journey, then my human experience is just a part of a greater transcendent part of who I am. And if I'm just a human being with a spiritual journey, then then I can conform that spiritual journey to my human experience. But if I'm a spiritual being on a human journey, then I can conform my humanity to my spirituality. Did I lose you? I'm a little lost. But it's profound nonetheless. I mean, you chew on that for a while. It's, it really is, when you begin to see, it's a complete paradigm shift. I mean, it changes everything about what is priority. Anyway, that's not the sermon. That was for free. We could close in prayer right now, but we're not going to. I told you this series could go on and on. And that was one of those things I was like, well, I don't have any place to fit that in the sermon, so I'll just tell you today. So last week, when we were looking at the church and the hundreds of churches that we visited, I talked about what they had in common. They were all Catholic, they were all old, and they were all made of stone. But there was another common denominator with these churches that we visited all across Spain, and it was the ubiquitous presence of the bell, that every church had a bell, whether it was a small little chapel or it was a grand cathedral, they all had these bells. And I mean, a small little chapel like this might just have a single bell, and there it was. Or you might go to a church that had multiple bells, like this one has seven bells of different sizes with different tones that were rung at different times for different purposes and in different arrangements of those things. And they might even be in a big bell tower. This one had four sides with, it, with four bells on each side, 16 bells that would ring out into the countryside. The bell tower I want to tell you a little bit about is this one. Uh, this is a bell tower that is separated from the cathedral that it was a part of. It was in Santo Domingo, which we talked about that two weeks ago. And in this cathedral, in this bell tower, this is the fourth bell tower they had. One of them was struck by lightning and collapsed. That's not a good thing for your bell tower. One of them was built on an area where there was some groundwater and it settled and collapsed. And I can't remember the third one, but this is the fourth one that was built. And it was constructed in 1762. And this bell tower has um, the ability for you to go and visit it, to go up in it, pay a euro, and you can go explore it. So I paid the euro, and there's 132 steps up to the top of the belfry. Well, not that I was counting, but 132 steps up there. We got up there, it's an incredible view of the countryside with about 10 or 12 bells and all. In fact, I, I took this picture out of this window. I took this picture uh, from this bell looking out under the countryside. Just absolutely beautiful. So I was up there visiting one afternoon, and it was about, I don't know, 5.15, 5.20, and I knew that at the top of the hour, these bells would ring. So as I went back down, there was a guy who was standing there taking the tickets or whatever. I don't know what they call him. I called him the bellboy because he was just there in his bells. So he did not speak a word of English, and I was really struggling with my Spanish. It was early in the trip. And what I wanted to ask him is, since I've already paid one euro to go up there, can I come back right before six and go back up to experience the bells ringing at the top of the hour? And so I'm trying to, to do all this, you know, uh, donde, uh, como, uh, six o'clock, nothing's working. Because six o'clock, by the way, is, it's supposed to be 18, you know, ores, 18. And I'm trying to think, how do you say 18 again? And uh, just, it was a mess. And finally, I, you know, I'm just like, so I thought, well, I'm going to try to come back. So right before six, I came back with my ticket. And he remembered me. He's like, you know, don't communicate with that guy. He just sent me up. So as I'm going up these 132 stairs, there's some folks coming down, and they don't speak English, but, it, but they're saying, no, no, and I'm like, yes, that, that's why I want to go up there. So they're trying to get me to stay away, because, you know, these bells are going to ring here in just a few minutes. 
And I got up there, and right before six, I was like, I made it. And I was the only one up there. Of course, I <laughs> 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 don't, know, don't know why that is. And, uh, and to be honest with you, at, at the six o'clock hour when it struck, it was really anticlimactic. Uh, because I was expecting lots of bells to be ringing and be extreme loud. Well, anyway, I made a video while I was up there, and in the video I talked about how desperately I wanted to ring all of these bells, different sizes and all these bells, and, and, but I decided against it, my better judgment, to keep world peace, I was not going to ring the bells. I posted that video on my Facebook, and some people, some of you, began calling me out, saying, you coward. Why didn't you ring the bell? Some of you saying, I've traveled with you. This is not like you. You don't follow rules when you travel. The next day, we were in a little town called Belorado. We got in there fairly early, and we settled into where we were staying, and about 150 yards down was another church, a church that had a steeple with about three or four bells, about three or four stork nests as well. We went in and looked at this church, and as we were looking in this church, I noticed on the back wall a rope hanging down next to the wall. And I said to Doreen, I bet that rings one of the bells. And she said, don't even think about it. <laughs> so throughout the afternoon, what I noticed is that at what should have been the top of the hour, the bells did ring, but they were early. They were like five or seven minutes before the top of the hour that the mechanical device was off. And it just bothered me. So that afternoon, we're in the town square, and we're sitting around at this little cafe that one of our friends, Mary, who is a, works in a Catholic church in Ohio, and by the way, she has a brother and sister-in-law that live in Linden, of all places. So, so we're talking with Mary and a guy named Johan. He's from South Africa, and we talked about Kailicha. It's a project I've been involved with down in South Africa. And that bell went off a little before five, and it bothered me because it's inaccurate. And I just dismissed myself from the table and ran back to the church. And I made this video I'd like to share with you. Okay, I'm in the town of Belorado, and I'm at this church, and uh, the problem is that the bell rang five or seven minutes too early. Now, some of you double-dog dared me yesterday when I was in the bell tower at Santo Domingo. So I came into this church, and I found this rope. And so I think it's my duty to make sure that the, the town knows the actual time that it is because the clock is off. They did it seven minutes early. So here's this church, and I'm the only one in here. This may be my last video, my last post. I may get arrested for this one. Cool-looking church. Um, and they, they do have, as I said, they have this rope here. And I think that um, I should ring it five times. So I'm going to pull this rope and uh, you're going to have to listen and see. And if I get arrested, pray for me. Okay, so here we go. Let's try this out. Oh, yeah, we did it. Okay, I'm out of here now. Now, I, I, said, I said we did it very loosely because I wanted you to be complicit with me in case I did get arrested. So, you know, after I posted that video, uh, my friend Terry that I went to college with, he, he wrote a little comment. He said, in all the towns, people came looking for the fire. It's like, okay, sorry about that. Uh, Joe Wilson, I think, said, all the farmers came in for church. I think it was Luke Brandon said, how did Brett Favre get in your video? Uh, anyway, so, but that started something for me that every time we went into a church and I saw a rope or a cord or a wire of where the bells might be, I just decided it would be good to 
ring those bells. I mean, I, last week I quoted Peter, Paul, and Mary. Some of you remember that. And, and uh, they did a song, If I Had a Hammer... But the second verse said, if I had a bell, I would ring it in the morning, I'd ring it in the evening, all over this land. So I was fulfilling that. So I was ringing the bells all across Spain. Everywhere I could get a chance, I would ring them and then go running all the time. It's kind of throwback to that doorbell thing we did when we were in middle school. So I would do all that and ring them and go. As I was doing this, I began thinking and contemplating the bells. They're, they're, they're everywhere. They're in every single church. They're for all these purposes. Thinking, how did that start? Where did that come from? And some of you say, well, obviously, Bob, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings, which is great for your little Christmas movie, but it's horrible theology, uh, completely wrong. In fact, if you study the scripture from cover to cover, bells are rarely ever mentioned. There's symbols that are mentioned, but there's only two times when bells are even mentioned, and they're not big church bells. One is found in Zechariah chapter 14, this obscure little passage that talks about on the day of the Lord, the bells on the horses will be inscribed with these words, holy to the Lord. So bells on bobtail ring, making spirits bright. It all happens there in Zechariah 14. The other one is found in Exodus when God is giving Moses specific instructions for the high priest and the garments there to wear when they go into the Holy of Holies to the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the people on the Day of Atonement. And it says, And on the hem of that garment tie little golden bells offset with pomegranates all around the hem so that as they're in the presence of the Lord, you can hear them working and jingling. If they're struck dead, the bells stop and you can kind of pull them out or what have you. And so that's the only places where the Bible even talks about bells. And so I started thinking, then how is it that it's become such a part in church history of these churches? And you may be asking the same. You may not, but I'll answer it anyway. There was a bishop, an Italian bishop, uh, named uh, Paulinus from Nora. And in the year 400 AD, he began to implement bells into his Christian worship experience. And apparently it caught on. Because a little over 200 years later, in 604, uh, Pope Sabinian said that, that, that bells would be a part of the church, and he sanctioned them as official. Now, over the years, the bells in the churches served many different purposes. One of them is you, you ring the bell, and it, it signals to the people the communal gathering for the service, to come together for Mass, to celebrate the Eucharist, to lift up the name of the Lord, to bring them all together. There are other times in church where the bell was rung three times a day, 6 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m., to remind people to pray the Lord's Prayer morning, noon, and night. There were times when the bells were rung for weddings. It became a tradition, those wedding bells that are ringing. There would be the death knell, which is called, uh, when someone dies, they would ring this bell, or at a funeral, they would ring the bell. There was a season in the church where there was a great deal of superstition and it was understood that bells or believed that bells would exercise demons. That's why some of these bell towers are so high with so many bells because it was thought that the more that these bells were rung that then your, your, your families and your town and your crops would all be safe. As far as they could be heard, it would, it would scare the demons away. Now, I am not an expert in demonology, but I think some demon that gets scared off by a bell is a pretty wimpy little demon, you know? Ding dong, I'm out of here. All right, okay, I'm not worried about that demon anyway. And then the prominent and predominant reason for bells that we're familiar with, with churches and bell towers, and even non-church bell towers like Big Ben in London, had to do with time, had to do with the stroke of the top of the hour. And why I tell you all that is that for whatever purpose, wh whether it was for a gathering of, of worship, whether it was for your independent prayer, whether it was for a wedding, or whatever it might have been, these church bells, the bells 
they, they sent a message. They sent a, a loud and clear message, a message to the community, a message to the church, and a message to the world. So as I was spending time across Spain thinking about that whole thing and these bells, I, I began to think, well, we don't have a bell here. We don't have a bell tower. We don't, and, and we it probably never will. But as I was thinking about this idea that these bells would send a clear and loud message to the church, to the community, and to the world, I thought, metaphorically, we do have a bell. We have a bell that we must ring because we have a message that we need to say to the church, to the community, and to the world, and that message is the message of the gospel, and the gospel must ring loud and clear. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, 2 Thessalonians says, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Now, why would it be a necessity to pray for this message? I think there's a couple reasons. There's probably multiple, but let me point out a few. One is that this message of the gospel might be despised. The message might be despised. There might be some who say, I don't want to hear about a, a sovereign God. I don't want to hear about a God who, who will tell me how to live my life. I don't want to hear about a God who has uh, you know, requirements for my morality, my sexuality, my finances, my, my, the way I forgive and how I operate. I, I just don't want to hear any of that. I, I, I despise the thought that I can't make all the call all the shots and be in control of everything in my life. And so there would be a despising of that. In fact, Paul says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But sometimes, wouldn't you agree with me, sometimes the reason people despise the message is not because of the content of the message, but it's the way that that message is communicated. So we're in a little town called Zubiri. Zubiri is a small little town of 400 people, population 400. And as I've said, in all these little towns, there is a prominent church, large church, disproportionate to the size of the town, and it too had a bell tower and a bell that was very loud. And this bell rang at the top of the hour, every hour, 24 hours a day. So we stayed there that night. The next morning we're at breakfast, and the buzz around breakfast was, that stupid bell! Every time I'd start getting ready to fall asleep, the bell would wake me up. Every time I'd start drifting off, the bell would wake me up. And they're cursing and this, this dreaded bell from the church. And we're all, I mean, I wasn't cursing, but we were all bemoaning the fact that we did not need to know that it was 3 a.m. when it was 3 a.m. when we wanted to sleep until 7. And as I was thinking about that that day and walking, I thought, how often throughout human history have Christians or the church or pastors or me communicated the message of the gospel in such a way that it actually repelled people from Jesus rather than attracting people to Jesus. And some of you might say, yes, but the message of the gospel, the message of the cross is offensive. Maybe so. But that doesn't mean we have to be offensive jerks in the way that we communicate the message. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I'm repelling people. People saying, shut up. Colossians, we read this. It says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, people who don't know Christ yet. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So pray for this message, this bell that we ring, the gospel. Another reason we need to pray is because the message might be ignored. 
Some might just say, you know, I feel like that's an antiquated message. It's irrelevant to me or to our world today. That was something from thousands of years ago. I don't have anything to do with it. And so it's a, a, a need to pray that people's eyes would be open to see, ears would be open to hear, hearts would be receptive to receive this. The, the greatest messenger of all Christian history who always said the right thing at always the right time in the right way with the right motive could not have asked, you could not critique this at all. Even his message wasn't always well received. It was Jesus, and Jesus said this, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, you will be ever seeing but never perceiving. And here's the truth for us as a church, is that we've been given a metaphorical bell to ring, and that bell is the gospel, and we can never stop ringing that bell. Even if it is despised, even if it is ignored, we are called to ring the bell. What we need to make sure that we do is ring it accurately. Because sometimes the church, and I'm going to use a big broad sweeping deal on this, but include me in this, sometimes the church have rung the bell of the gospel in a way that was not attractive. In fact, it was more negative. It was a hell's bells kind of a ringing. For whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, and there's almost this inner excitement and judgment you're going to spend. You know, and it, that is not the gospel message. Let me remind you, and, and let me give you a, a little bit of a, you know I don't speak Greek, but a little bit of a Greek lesson here, is that this message of the gospel, that the bell that we are called to ring, this message, the message is evangelion. Evangelion. Say that word with me. Evangelion. One more time. Evangelion. Evangelion is the word, the Greek word that is translated gospel, but it is also translated good news. Good news. Now listen, Evangelion was not originally a Christian word. It was not originally a religious word. It wasn't a church word. It was more of a political military word. Here's how it operated. If there was some event, some great announcement that needed to be made, there would be evangelists who would go and bring this good news. If there was a military victory, they would send someone running to tell the people, there is good news, we have won. If the emperor had a new son or an heir to the throne, they would send all messages out to all the, the villages, there's good news of this new arrival. For us, it would be like this. If the mariners, hypothetically, Hypothetically, this is not accurate, this is not reality. If the Mariners, hypothetically, were to ever make it into postseason play, that would be Evangelion. Good news. Now, it'll never happen, but I'm just trying to illustrate that. And in this, this year, on the rare occasions that the Seahawks get a win, because with the preseason, we're one in six. Hello. Evangelion, it's, it's good news. So when Jesus is born, the angels come to the shepherds and they say, do not be afraid, I bring you Evangelion. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you today in the city of David, a Savior has been born unto you. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins to start his adult ministry, he goes to Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, he gets to what we would consider Isaiah 61, and he begins reading these words, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, he has anointed me to preach evangelion, he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. In Luke chapter 8, it says that Jesus went from village to village teaching the evangelion, the good news of the gospel. 
of the kingdom of God. When Mark starts his gospel, he says, the beginning of the Evangelion, the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. When Peter is sent to Cornelius to talk about this whole thing in Acts, it says this, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. We can never lose sight of the fact that we have been given a bell to ring. The bell is the gospel, and we must always ring it loud and clear. That's to wake you up in case you're sleeping. The good news about Jesus Christ. In other churches, they would say amen, and this one, I'm just going to say evangelion. All right. So here's what I want us to do today in the remainder of our time. I want to remind us of this message, this bell that we as a church have been entrusted with and are called to ring nonstop and to ring it accurately. I want to talk about the message of reconciliation. And what I want to do is I want to look at a passage of Scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, your tablet, your phone, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I mentioned the city of Corinth last weekend. Corinth was this very metropolitan city, a very worldly, very welcome, a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures. There were people who were Egyptians who had moved to, to Corinth. There were people who were Syrians. There were Jewish folks that lived there. There were Italians. There were Greeks. A lot of multicultural gathering here. A lot of different nationalities, a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different beliefs and practices and cultures. This was Corinth. And in this, Paul goes and he plants a church. And the good news, the Evangelion, the, the, the message of Jesus takes root and the church starts. And the church is a reflection of the community around. So it's not just Jewish people. But there's multiple different races and nationalities and backgrounds. And with them come with all kinds of baggage and practices and beliefs. And it's all trying to get straightened out. That's why he writes these letters, to try and get them straightened out on some of these things. But in this... In their community, in their culture, people were categorized. People were, were pigeonholed. They're of this nationality. They're of this race. They're of this uh, social economic standing. They're of this level of education. There are all these different rankings. And in the church, you had all those things as well. But Paul comes along, and as he's writing in 2 Corinthians early in, in chapter 5, he, he, he talks about how, as they've all come together as his church, that Christ's love compels them. This is the one thing, that Christ's love compels them because one died for all. And so he comes to this conclusion, therefore, we do not regard anyone from a worldly point of view the way we used to. We don't see them as, oh, well, they're from that nationality, or, well, they don't have this much education, or they don't have this kind of social standard, or they don't have this much money. He says, we don't regard anyone from the worldly point of view the way we used to. In essence, what he's saying is that the playing field at the foot of the cross is level, for all of us. And then he starts in, and this is, I want us to see again, this incredibly good news that for some of us is just a reminder, some of us, we live in this reality. For some of you, maybe it will be the first time you understand this. So in verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone, and that, you've got to just stop right there. Anyone, doesn't matter your nationality, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your level of education, doesn't matter your economic standing, doesn't matter your status, doesn't matter your birth, doesn't matter. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There's a new identity. 
You're seen first and foremost as a brother or sister in Christ, not according to your nationality, but because of the thing that causes all of us to come together in unity is that is that Christ is the common denominator. We are Christians first. You know, we sing that song, I am who you say I am. That I am a child of the Most High. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. We've got this new identity. All the old has passed away and the new has come. The old practices, the old lifestyle, the old habits, the old belief system, all of that has passed away, and now there's a new way of living, there's a new way of thinking, there's a new way of believing, there's a new way of being as a spiritual being, there's a new way of who you are in Christ. And not only that, but all of the old mistakes, all the old failures, all the old regrets, all the old sins, all of that has passed away, all of that has been forgiven, and the new has come. I mean, that right there is good news. You say, who would do that? He says, let me tell you who would do that. All of this is from God. It's from God. And, and I, I say, wait a second. God, God knows, God alone knows everything I've done. God knows everything I've said. God knows everything I've thought. God knows every motive I've had. I mean, truth is this. I don't remember everything I've done. Not because I'm inebriated, but because I'm human. You don't remember all the things you've done. You don't remember all the things you've thought. You don't remember all the things. God knows us better than we know ourselves. Sometimes you say, well, no one knows except me. No, 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 no. God knows. And if anyone has the right to call me out on it, it's God. He knows, and it's him that I've sinned against. He knows what I've done. He knows what I thought. He knows how I've, uh, what I've said and, and my motives. Even when I've convinced myself that my motives are pure, he knows all of that. And he says, and let me tell you something else about our God. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Here's the bad news, is that we needed to be reconciled. That means that there was a separation. There was, there was an estrangement. There was a divorce. There was a rift. There was a gap between us and God. And the reason that gap is there is because of my sins, because of my old ways, because of the things that I've done. It's not anything God did. I separated myself. And this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. And I need you to be very clear. This, was, this is a bell I will always ring loud and clear. Every other religion talks about how I must somehow work, strive, you know, discipline, pathway, whatever it might be, sacrifice to get myself back in a right standing with God, to get myself back connected with a God, a deity who may at best be ambivalent towards me, at worst be ticked off and angry at me, that I have to work to somehow earn my good graces, which takes grace completely out of it. Christianity, notice the direction. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. It's not me trying to reconcile myself to God. It's God reconciling us to himself. And he says, and it's not by what you do, and it's not by your striving, and it's not by your efforts. It's what he's done through Christ. That Christ's sacrifice on the cross, the, the, the work that is complete there to take care of my sin and his resurrection allows me to have a right relationship with God Every other time we say, well, I'm trying to reconcile myself back to this deity through what I've done. He says, it's just the opposite. God is reconciling us back to himself through what Christ has done. That is Evangelion, the gospel. That's good news. And he goes on. This doesn't make any sense to me. And gave us 
the ministry of reconciliation. I, I get that God does this. I mean, I, I'm grateful that he does it. But now he, he entrusts to us this ministry. Like he calls us to, to not only be reconciled to him, but now to join him in his mission of reconciliation. That he would give us this responsibility. And he said, now, now that you're back right with me, now together, let's do this. And he says this. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Doesn't sound, doesn't that sound a lot like this phrase, God reconciled us to himself through Christ? This is what he did for us. This is what he's doing in the world. But it's all the same. He says, what you have experienced, the grace that you know in Jesus, the forgiveness that you've received, the love that surrounds you, his goodness to you, he has done that for you, and he is doing that for the world. And he finishes this one off, and he says this, not counting men's sins against them. I, I just have to push pause and say, wait a second. The God who is completely holy, altogether just, the righteous judge of all the universe to whom every person will have to give an account doesn't count our sins against us. And don't you wish your spouse was more like God? <laughs> or your friends? You know who I really wish was more like God? My insurance company. I mean, in May, we're getting ready to go off to Europe. And I've got all these things I've got to do and get done in four days, all this stuff. So I'm multitasking, running errands, got phone calls, got to call my mom, got to call things. So I'm on the phone, and I'm not proud of this, this is confession time, I'm not proud of this. Multitasking, getting these tasks done. I get on the phone and I call, making this essential, necessary phone call, and I pass a sheriff. And I said, I gotta go, I'm gonna get a ticket. <laughs> he pulls me over, and I'm just like, and he, I didn't even try to argue my way out of it because I'm guilty of sin on this one. And he wrote me a ticket, $136. And I was so embarrassed and so guilty, I just wrote the check and sent it off. Didn't even tell my wife. I was embarrassed, but I just didn't, didn't even tell my wife. Our government had the unmitigated audacity <laughs> to tell my insurance company. <laughs> I have worked hard to get my driving record clean and to keep it clean. I've been doing well recently. <laughs> and it was clean, and now I've got this talking on the cell phone. So when it came time to renew our insurance, they jacked our rates. We haven't put in a claim ever. I've been a clean driving record, and they jacked our rates. So Doreen says, anything you want to tell me? Yeah, I, I was embarrassed. It was before we went to Europe. Okay. So she started doing some investigation. And apparently, and this is a public service announcement to you because I'm your pastor and I care for you, <laughs> that apparently now talking on your cell phone is seen as like a, a reckless endangerment and it is taken very seriously. So don't do it. So they jacked our insurance rates. I wanted to call and say, I'm a new creation in Christ. All the old has passed away. All things have become new, sir. And by the way, in case you aren't aware, 
God is no longer counting your sins against you, but you're counting mine against me. How hypocritical, how judgmental, how condemning you must be. Doesn't work. But with the holy, righteous God, the judge of the universe, he says, I don't count your sin against you anymore. You know what that is? Evangelion. You remember the Princess Bride? Inconceivable. I read this and I say, Evangelion. Ring that bell. That is good good news and he continues on and he has committed to us this message this evangelion this message of good news this message of reconciliation jesus says i'm giving you my bell like when the angels came they got to ring the bell to the shepherds when i came i got to ring the bell the church, the disciples, the early church, for 2,000 years, they've got the bell. Right now, in 2018, I'm giving you the bell. You have the bell. You get to ring it. I'm giving you the message of reconciliation. I'm entrusting it to you. And he continues on. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. He says, hey, represent like you're wearing my name you're wearing my jersey i've given you the bell represent and do it well this is god's message don't mess it up don't add to it don't delete from it don't water it down don't make it more difficult just make it clear loud and clear i don't know if you've ever been misquoted but when you find that i said well that's not exactly what i said and that changes the whole meaning no 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 i didn't put that they forgot to tell all about he says listen you say this clearly ring it loud and clear and accurately you're representing Christ, and you're making this appeal for God. And then, with this authority, he says this, we implore you on Christ's behalf, speaking for Jesus, receive it, be reconciled to God. He's given it, he's offering it. And this is from the one who loves you best, who knows you more than you know yourself, and who loves you so much that he would pay for this with his own blood. And we're just asking you, we're speaking for Jesus. We're, we're giving you God's message. Be reconciled to God. Don't try and fix this on your own. Let what Christ did, his finished work on the cross, bring you new life and make you a new creation. And then in this chapter, he ends with what I think is the Evangelion verse of all times. So hard for us to wrap our minds around. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, not in us, not in our efforts, not in our sacrifices, not in our good works, not in our discipline, not in our great intentions, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Either say some amens or I'm going to bring this thing again. That's the evangelion. We met fascinating people from all over the world. And one guy that we spent a lot of time with, a guy named Stephen, very interesting man born in Bermuda, raised an Anglican. When he was in high school, he was shipped off to Canada to get his education, then matriculated in the UK, uh, became an attorney, and in the process became an atheist. As an adult, as an atheist, he was reading the new atheists, you know, Dawkins and, and, and Hitchens and those, and as he would read their arguments, he would find himself pushing back, and suddenly he began to realize, I don't really agree with them, 
So he went to Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, and got a master's degree in Christian apologetics and converted to Catholicism and was on the Camino to determine whether or not he should become a priest. Fascinating individual. In addition to that, and this is not a judgment of his lifestyle, and it's not a justification of his lifestyle, he smoked like a chimney, drank like a fish, swore like a sailor, and tried to pick up every woman on the way. Very interesting young man. But what was amazing in our conversations is this, is that he had a firm grasp of grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while he's still trying to figure out all kinds of stuff, and I don't always agree with his theology, and I definitely don't agree with his lifestyle choices, he understood the grace of Jesus Christ. And what was amazing to me is I would sit with him and he would sit with these people and we'd be in a bar or wherever and half of them are inebriated and whatever. In almost every conversation, he would somehow turn it around to the grace of Jesus Christ. And I thought, this is the craziest thing. He is more of a pastor here than I am. He is ringing the bell more clearly to people who are not very clear <laughs> than I am. And for a moment, I thought about that passage where Jesus said to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and the sinners get this more than you do. They're closer to the kingdom of heaven. I'm not justifying his lifestyle. I'm not even judging his lifestyle. But one thing I know about Stephen, he understands the grace of Jesus Christ, and he rings that bell. We as the church, who have been reconciled to God through Christ, have been given the message of reconciliation, and we've been given the bell, and we must ring it loud and clear. It must always ring clear of the Evangelion good news of Jesus Christ that he is reconciling the world to himself. Nestled right next to the probably most famous verse Jesus ever, ever uttered, so often overlooked and bypassed are these great evangelical words, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Listen. If God didn't send Jesus in the world to condemn the world, then the church has not been in the world to condemn the world either. We as a church are here to ring the bell of good news of a God who loves them enough to send his son Jesus Christ that they may have life, new life, a new creation in Christ. Evangelion, good news. Amen.